Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. This isn't a question of not doing it well enough. They're simply not doing signature verification. You will hear from Ms. Lake's whistleblowers, who will actually be the marching band for Maricopa County, and they will testify that they, in fact, were part of the process that did do signature verification. It's deep, it's broad, it's scandalous. And the important thing is that yesterday and in the days and weeks leading up to yesterday, access shut off the money supply. Some people didn't like the large tax breaks that underpinned the entire deal. Other people had more, you know, kind of practical level concerns like the impact on traffic, the impact on their neighborhood. What is next for the franchise will be evaluated by our owner and the National Hockey League over the coming weeks. This is a bill to prevent state money from going to drag shows for minors. Be hilarious to vote against this bill, and therefore I vote aye. These people have been out of water since January. This bill isn't going to cost Scottsdale anything. It'll get the spigots turned on. And with me to talk about Carrie Lake having a few more days in court, Tempe voters defeating a plan for a new Coyotes arena and more, are Doug Cole of High Ground. Hey, Doug. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing well. And former State House Minority Leader Reginald Bolding. Reginald, good to see you as well. Thanks for having me. So, guys, let's start with the vote in Tempe, um, which was not particularly close. And for an off-year election, fairly high turnout. It was in the 34 to 36 percent range, which is fairly high turnout. Doug, was it surprising that this was the result? Well, it, it was a very interesting campaign, and it, and it was one of the highest uh, percentage of turnout in, in an off-cycle off election in the, in the city of Tempe. Um, you know, you have to prove a public benefit uh, for these sports uh, arenas and facilities. And the Cardinals did it really well when they, when they went out to Glendale because they, they, they proved that they're going to have Super Bowls, that they're going to have, you know, Final Fours. And other large events, these big, huge soccer events. And then they added, very smartly, they added a component of having youth sports mm. and, and, that, that, and that they would be funding youth sports also as they build the stadium. And, and, and that fund has funded uh, youth facilities all over the state. So they proved a community benefit. The Coyotes, conversely, in Tempe, did not do that. You don't have a Super Bowl in, in on a sheet of ice. You don't have a Final Four on a sheet of ice. So, so they were able. They weren't able to 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 do that broader community asset that that was needed to, for it to cross the finish line. But I think a really interesting thing, if you look at the the voter breakdown, everything north of Elliott Road in 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 uh, Tempe voted against, all the precincts up there voted against uh, the facility. And as you got closer to the, to the river, um, the no votes became even more because mm. I, I think you can you can extrapolate that people didn't want the traffic. Closer to where the arena exactly, was Exactly. But, but in South Tempe, uh, they voted they voted for it. So uh, very interesting. And I think there's going to be a lot more analysis. But it's going to be really interesting to see where what the Coyotes do. Do they continue here or do they go look in other, other markets? Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. Reginald, I want to ask you about the money component of this because the no side was vastly outspent by the yes side. 
Are there lessons from that campaign and the results of it and how much money and how little money was spent that can be extrapolated out to other political campaigns? Well, I think when you look at just the coalitions and the messaging behind the entire proposal, you know, it didn't line up directly with who the voter is in the city of Tempe. Tempe is a very progressive city, you know, the most diverse city council in, in the state. Uh, you know, you have younger voters, you have a, a mix of folks who are there and people who were uh, opposed to it, they were loudly and vocally opposed to it. And all of those individuals who were supporting it, I, I mean, I would consider them more of folks who are in the, the business community, former past, uh, past and current elected officials. Right, a lot of former mayors. Yeah, so, I mean, there wasn't a direct connection between those who were supporting that this publicly in the everyday Tempe voter, and I think that played out. I mean, even when you look at south of Elliott, um, you know, where you saw the most yes votes, it was 52-48. It was still extremely close. And and, and I, I think just really that uh, passion for not having this, you know, in my backyard just really, uh, really made people really fired up. Yeah, to that point, I mean, they had a great, the no side had a great ground game going on. My mother lives south of Elliott with, with my stepfather, and I was over there um, a, f- a few weeks ago and got a knock on the door uh, f- from somebody canvassing for the no side, and, and they were on their game. Hmm. Um, so they they were, they were had a great ground game, and, and with, with the resources that they had, uh, it's not surprising this thing went down. I just was surprised by how much it went down by. Yeah, what does that say? I mean, obviously, hockey... It has its its passionate fan base, but nothing like what the Suns have or what the Cardinals have or what the D-backs have. If this were one of those teams, might this have been a different d- different uh, result, Reginald, do you think? I mean, I think to, to, to Doug's point, I mean, when you take a step back and you say, what is the, you know, public good, community good benefit that you're going to provide? I, I think that is something that, you know, people can inherently, they feel a closer connection to some of these other teams. I, I do agree with that. Um, but I just also think when you take a step back and you look at the nuts and bolts of building out a campaign and talking to voters, I, it seemed like there was just more time spent on building a coalition of high-profile individuals who people know as opposed to the actual nuts and bolts of actually running a campaign. Does this speak, Reginald, to a, some kind of disconnect between Tempe city government, the mayor and city council, who all were in favor of this, and some majority, at least those who voted in this election, who opposed it? Well, when you're in elected office, you know, many times you have information, you're, you're looking at information, you're having conversations that everyday voters aren't having. And that's just the reality. You're not only looking at what is the short term effect, but also what is the long term benefit as well. And everyday voters may not be looking at a particular situation and issue that way. So I, I think that the council, they were looking at what could this be not only today, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And voters were worried about whether or not they're going to have have, you know, congested traffic, you know, in the next five months because construction's starting. Doug, if you are Tempe Mayor Corey Woods or members of the city council, should you be worried that that you kind of got this one wrong? I don't I don't I don't think so. I, I think that um, as as we've discussed, there were there that pe- there was no community benefit. But that piece of property has a lot of other opportunities in the future. I mean the big challenge is cleaning up the landfill, correct? Right. Uh, but it is the last big piece of property there. And I, I think they also had some problems because it was at the end of the runway. I mean, that that raised some questions also, but, you know, the, the fight between the city of Phoenix and, and, the, and the city of Tempe. 
they'll figure that out. They the this council, uh, this mayor have done a wonderful job in, in developing and creating a, a, a opportunities along Tempe Town Lake and and within the Mill Avenue a corridor um, in partnership with Arizona State University. The future's bright. This isn't. This isn't going to sit out there dormant for years and years and years. They'll figure it out. It just is not going to be a hockey arena. So, Reginald, obviously, the Coyotes are not going to be playing in Glendale anymore. They're not going to be playing in Tempe. There's been some talk. Maybe the new Suns owner would want to retrofit uh, Footprint Center, have them play there. We've seen that there's maybe some uh, talk of having them out by Fiesta Mall in Mesa. Is this it for the for the Coyotes in the Valley, at least, you know, maybe after this coming season? Or is this an opportunity? Might some other city or maybe one of the reservations step forward and one of the tribes step forward and say, OK, we'll do it? Well, look, less than 24 hours after it went down hard, you already seen, you know, cities and advocates saying, you know, bring, you know, bring uh, the Coyotes to our city, bring them to our backyard. Uh, so. I, you know, I, I think that there is a a, a pause and a, a base of people who want to keep you know professional hockey here in the state of Arizona. Um, I think it does provide you know many benefits to the state when you say you have you know the major professional sports teams that are located here. But I think ultimately it's going to come down to what what's the deal that these cities or or uh, tribal nations are going to actually have, and and can it actually be uh, put into fruition. Doug, what do you think? The Coyotes stay here ultimately? Does some other city jump in and say, we'll do it? Well, I think that they have to do their due diligence and talk to other cities. You know, Mesa, though, has that has that ordinance that if it, if it's if there's over $1.5 million in public benefits, it's got to go to a vote. But Mesa voters have voted for many projects. You know, the Gaylord projects out in, out in the far west, far east valley. You know, they voted for the wave yard. None of those were built, but they also voted for the for the Cubs training facility, and that was built. So, you know, Mesa voters are used to this, um, and the Fiesta Mall area is a priority for for Mayor Giles and the Mesa City Council. So, I, I anticipate more discussions going on there, but I, I think that. Part of what the Coyotes will need will be to be closer in. Their fan base is on more of the of, of west of Central. I mean, east of Central. East of Central excuse yeah. me, east of Central. So that's kind of the geographic you know delineation of where they'll be looking at. All right. So, guys, let's move from the Coyotes to the courtroom. Um, I wish we had a basketball reference here. So we go from one court to another, but <laughs> may, maybe at the end of the segment. Um, so uh, Kerry Lake uh, had another uh, couple days in court this week talking uh, with a state judge about basically whether or not Maricopa County did signature verification on early ballots. And Reginald, there's a lot of talk online about, and we heard at the, at the top, the, one of the lawyers for the county basically saying, Kerry Lake's lawyers are going to be like our best wit or her witnesses are going to be our best witnesses witnesses because they're talking about the process here. I, I'm sure that you were glued to your screen watching every last minute of this. Um, based on what you've seen, like what are what are your takeaways from from what you heard? And you know, I'm sure this is every uh, citizen in Arizona's favorite topic to, t- to discuss <laughs> right now. Uh, you know, I mean, the biggest takeaways is, uh, you know, I, what we've known for the last several years uh, is that, you know, right now they're, they're, they're trying to find if there's anything that sticks. Uh, you know, the reality is what you saw in a courtroom, you know, the county they were able to lay out with their witnesses, you know, signature verification did occur. Even Carrie Lake's, you know, witness, they couldn't prove that, you know, signature verification wasn't wasn't uh, something that actually happened. So, I mean, this is just a little bit of more of the same that we're consistently hearing 
Um, and, you know, it's doing great for keeping, you know, uh, the fundraising cycle going for, you know, for Carrie Lake uh, and, and, and her folks and her team there. But ultimately, you know, it's just taking it's taking up more time in the courts and people are ready to move on. Doug, what did you see? Well, I saw, and we we heard we heard the uh, chief uh, of the civil division in, in the clip coming coming into the program here. That was Tom Liddy, and you know my my hat off to him. I know I don't know how he he and Joe Larue from the civil division keep a straight face. Um, he said in his opening comments, as as we just discussed, that that the the uh, plaintiffs' witnesses are going to be be our best witnesses, and you know what they they were, and they continue to be. Um, and but I my hat also off to Judge Peter Thompson because he is giving uh, Kerry Lake's lawyers every opportunity and he's he's letting them you know giving them a lot of latitude because the last thing he wants is is for is for this to be appealed back up to the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. Remember the reason we're hearing this case now is because uh, of the original case back in December there was there was there was ten areas. Uh, all 10 were sent up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court set back this one, which requires them to prove with clear and convincing ed- evidence that they did no signature verification. And um, we have learned and we will learn again today, it's the trials underway right now, that they did do signature verification. I, so, I, so I think this is going to be a slam dunk. Um, and I think it's going to be very hard to for any any more appellate action. Doug, before we go to break, I want to ask you about sort of the political impact of this because candidates are starting to get ramped up for 2024, and your firm, your colleague Paul Benz, has done a lot of polling over the last few years showing that election denialism and this kind of rhetoric is not a real winning argument even among Republican voters. So as this case continues and presumably it'll go whatever happens here will get appealed and get appealed to the state Supreme Court. What does that do for the Republican primary candidates and, and voters? Well, we've already seen it, uh, the diminishment of, of the intensity of this issue, but it still is out there with a with a very vocal slice of the Republican electorate. Um, so in order to be successful moving into 2024, uh, the uh, candidates are going to have to talk about other issues, and and because voters care about other issues, the majority primaries are a different are a different animal, though, because you know these people that believe in this election denialism vote, um, and they are a, a very loud voice, and they're very active. So it's 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 how how to move beyond that, but I, it's diminishing. It's not as you know. As as loud as it was in twenty twenty, okay, um, and and there is there is a path forward, but it's a problem for the Republican Party. It remains a problem. Here we are, months later, still litigating the the November of twenty twenty two election. It's just bizarre. All right, that is Doug Cole, also joined by Reginald Bolding. Reginald, let me ask you uh, about the state legislature, which uh, was in session for. A lot of hours this week, but not a lot of days. They had one marathon session. They did like 90-some-odd bills that they voted on, um, and now they're off for like a month. Um, I'm curious what you make of the fact that they still have some pretty big stuff to do, and yet apparently they can't get their members to cancel their vacations to uh, to come in and, and vote on stuff. Yeah, so every member of leadership, whether you're in the Republican caucus or the Democratic caucus, you, you have a member that comes in your office and they say, hey, I booked a family vacation for the first week, first two weeks of May. And, and you you ask yourself, <laughs> you know, have you been watching what's going on the last several years, right? I mean, so, so ultimately, practically what's happening, there's just not enough 
Republican members who are in the majority to uh, be on the floor to ensure that any bill that goes up on the board is going to be passed. You know, ultimately, there's another path. You could just work with the minority caucus and figure it out and get out of there soon. But I, I do think that there are real conversations and discussions that need to go uh, with regards to, uh, you know, Prop 400 and other, you know, their major issues that, you know, you do need time to work those things through and make, you know, get, get cut a deal. Doug, there has been some, I don't want to say cynicism, but there, there are some folks who say, you know, the legislature maybe just won't adjourn and keep themselves in session. So if Governor Hobbs does something that Republican leadership doesn't like, they don't have to wait for her to call them into special session. Any any truth to that, do you think? Well, first of all, I'm shocked that you used the word politics and cynicism in the same sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize to you both. <laughs> well, um, as as Reginald said, there are huge issues that need to be that need to be uh, uh, figured out, and and the biggest one is Prop 400, and that's the future of our transportation. The, tax. Sen- the sales tax. Yeah, in and you know the, the 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 feds came out yesterday in Phoenix and Maricopa County is the number one growing county in the country. We're the tenth largest metropolitan area and the fifth largest city in the country. So yeah, we have to continue to build out if we're going to have the Taiwan semiconductors and and the Intel's putting you know sixty seventy billion dollars in investment here. Uh, that's got to be figured out because the tax expires in in a, in, in a few years, and it will be figured out. Uh, there's there's other issues I think that that people tend to forget that are very important in the operation of state government. We still have almost every state agency director that has not been confirmed by the Senate, and that's very difficult to run the executive branch when you have people there that could only be there for a year because if they don't get confirmed within a within a year they have to they have to exit that spot so it makes it very difficult to hire uh, uh, quality managers working under that person that may not be around there. So that's got to be figured out also. Reginald, there was some discussion after the budget agreement between Governor Hobbs and Republican legislative leaders that, you know, especially some on the left were saying, well, why didn't the governor extract a concession from the Republicans that they would confirm her nominees? I mean, as Doug said, most of her nominees are still kind of in limbo. You know, when you take a step back and you're the governor, you have a a number of major issues that are of concern, you know, and I think for Governor Hobbs, her and her team, they took the calculus and they made the decision that a bipartisan budget with a supermajority vote was a better political chip than to have this conversation about, you know, uh, whether or not their agency directors are going to get confirmed. Now, was it the best strategy or not? I mean, it really depends on, you know, what the governor's office, you know, what their plan is with regards to those agency directors. But, you know, I think stepping away, coming uh, out with a bipartisan budget, supermajority votes, you know, getting major things like $150 million in the housing trust fund, amongst other things, was a significant win for a first-term governor. Let me ask you about a couple of the bills that lawmakers approved uh, in that marathon session. By the way, did you ever have a session where you voted on 90-some-odd bills in one day? Multiple. Yeah? Okay. (laughs) All right. It doesn't seem like a lot of fun. Uh, no, not a, not at all. No. Okay. And, and it's typically due to, you know, management practices of, of calendars. OK, so. that's a very diplomatic way to say it. So it seemed like there were a number of, quote unquote, culture war type bills in terms of uh, pronouns, preferred pronouns for students and what bathroom students can use and stuff about drag shows. 
To your point earlier about Republicans maybe being concerned about members being out, not being able to pass things strictly on party lines, did it seem like this was an effort to get a lot of those out and probably with the understanding that the governor is going to veto most, if not all of them? You know, what's happening right now, I could tell you probably in the House, is you have, you know, members who are, you know, further to the right. They want to make sure that they can deliver on the promises that they made to their constituents. And that was to get those bills on the board and those voted out of the House. I don't think that any member down there expects these things to go into law. In fact, they're just going to add to the to the record, the veto record. But these were promises that these lawmakers made to their constituents. And the speaker has to honor that in order to keep a cohesive caucus. Yeah, Doug, I mean, it seems like this is a matter, as Reginald said, of the speaker and the president. You know, they, I'm sure, agree with some of these bills. They voted for a number of these bills, if not all of them. But how much of this is sort of keeping their caucus happy and keeping their caucus unified as we go into some of these big issues like Prop 400? and housing and things like that down the road. Correct. It's it's a very difficult task because, remember, they only have one one vote majority in both chambers and and it's very hard to keep them all together because they're they're not unified in how they view things. So it is it is a management issue, as as Reginald pointed out. It's it's also it's also, you know, keeping your political promises made to your constituents. But a lot of these folks that probably would, if the if the numbers were a bit different, there were a few more Republicans in the majority caucus, probably would have voted no on some of these. But they mm. know that the governor uh, is going to veto them. I mean, for instance, photo radar, the ban on photo radar. A lot of people who support photo radar voted for the ban because they know that the governor probably, it's a Wendy Rogers bill, <laughs> it's probably going to get vetoed. Uh, you know, so you had a lot of that dynamic that you haven't had in the past. You know, with, that we have not had a split government since the, the, the Napolitano days. So people are. This is the first session with this governor and in this slim majority, um, and they're still trying to get used to each other and how they operate. But I agree with uh, Reginald. Getting this budget done was was a huge, I think, a big victory for the governor and and for and for legislative leadership and getting this done, especially um, in the months not June. We did it in May. Doug, that's an interesting concept about legislative Republicans, sort of the rank and file, seeing the governor as a backstop. That maybe she gives them cover to vote for things, knowing that they're not going to go into law. That's I, I can tell you that's going on, and uh, uh, and will continue. Um, and as you know, probably through next session, we'll have to see what the 2024 uh, elections bring us, uh, who's in the majority, whether the, the Republicans uh, go in the minority for the first time uh, since the early 90s where the Senate was uh, was run by the Democrats. Uh, we will see. Uh, but that's the dynamic we have right now. And it's an, it's very interesting to navigate and, and to observe. Reginald, you mentioned the governor's veto record. One of the bills that she vetoed this week dealt with allowing uh, basically concealed uh, weapons on college campuses. Um, this has been a bill, I think, Doug, Governor Brewer dealt with this yes. like, back when you were working with her. Exactly. Um, this has been an issue for a really long time. I can't imagine it was much of a surprise that the governor vetoed it. But from your perspective, have the arguments changed at all over the course of this issue being sort of in the public eye? You know, I mean... Every single, you know, week and month, you start to see, you know, you know, shoot, you know, gun shootings, uh, you know, across this country. And I, and I do think that, you know, when when you see, uh, you know, you see these incidents, you see lawmakers and you see activists and you see people who are really paying attention to these issues. And they're, they're really highlighting, you know, this fact that, you know, do we want to have more guns in places where, you know, kids, students, parents, communities can, can get hurt? 
and you know, I, I think the issues, I think the issues ultimately remain the same. Um, I, I and I do think that it's going to take extreme amount of political, you know, will uh, from everyone in order to really make some progress. Do you have a gut feeling of what the final veto number will be this year? You know, I, the question is how many bills left are on the board that, you know, uh, Speaker Toma and, uh, you know, uh, President uh, Peterson will put on the board. But I, 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 no, no, no guess for me. No guess for me. Well, usually we have, we have a pool, as Reginald knows, on, on when signee die is going to be. And signee die is when the legislature adjourns for the year. The, 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 the more, more robust pool this year is how, what the veto number is going to be. Right. As you stated earlier, uh, 90-some bills were sent up, and most of those were Senate bills. And I would say probably 60 to 60% of those bills were party-line votes. And the governor has been pretty consistent on vetoing party-line vote bills. So I can see that number at least jumping by another 40. So maybe the real question is, is the governor's veto total this year kind of like DiMaggio's hit streak, right? This, the streak, <laughs> the record that will never be broken, right? Right. That'll be interesting to see. All right. Doug Cole of High Ground, Reginald Bolding, former state house minority leader. Thanks to you both for coming in. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, thanks. Mark. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.